Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 13th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is from across the pond, proportionality. There's been such a lot of buzz about proportionality, John, but we kind of find, I think, when we lecture that it is not very well understood. So let's start with a a broad definition, which is usually something along the lines of discovery should be proportional to the amount at stake. Now, that's easy when it's rubles or pesos you're talking about, but it's not so easy when important social issues are involved. And that's part of what we're going to be discussing today. Also, people don't really seem to understand that proportionality has been around around a long time, uh, particularly in, in the UK. It's been around in the, the United States legal system for some time, too, but we just didn't use the word or, or exercise it enough or define it enough. Uh, but now that it's been anointed by the Sedona Conference, it, it's been highlighted a great deal in the last couple of years, and we've actually been asked to give a couple of presentations on it uh, next month. In the UK, proportionality has been served up for a very long while, with, re- with the judges routinely refusing to spend, even in the paper world, discovery monies that were disproportionate to the amount in dispute in the case. Of course, it's much tougher in the UK, as you know, John, when we went over there Mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, uh, we learned more than we had ever known about the English system of jurisprudence. And I know it really was shocking the extent to which not only were you going to have your discovery rationed, but if you lost your case, you were probably going to pay for the other side's costs and attorney's fees as well. Yeah, we also learned that it's not called e-discovery, it's e-disclosure over there. So <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we kept stepping on ourselves and making this look like idiots. But anyway, um, before we get too far, it's a, a pr- probably a good idea that, to make sure that we have the principles of proportionality in, in mind. The Sedona Conference Commentary of Proportionality and Electronic Discovery was published back in August of 2010, and it's freely available for download at www thesedonaconference.org. We're going to talk in, in more detail about the, the six principles of, of proportionality in, in a little bit, but do you want to give us a little bit of the, the history, Sharon, where we got here, how we got here? Yeah, and I, I know this sounds a little professorial, but we really find that most people don't have any idea of the history of proportionality. They tend to think it's something brand new. But it was actually addressed a long time ago in the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. In case you, you've forgotten, and I had, it, they were first enacted in 1938. And of course, they've been amended several times since then. In, in 1983, Rule 26B was amended, granting courts the power to limit discovery where it was redundant or duplicative. And this was really the official beginning of proportionality. Proportionality, with the advisory committee noting then that the amendment was designed to, to, quote, guard against redundant or disproportionate discovery by giving the court authority to reduce the amount of discovery that may be directed to matters that are otherwise proper subjects of inquiry, close quote. Here are the factors that the committee listed to be considered in determining whether discovery was proportional. And they're going to sound familiar to you because a lot of these have been adopted today. And they are the, the nature and complexity of the lawsuit, the importance of the issues at stake, the party's resources, the significance of the substantive issues, and public policy concerns. 
Then in 1993, a new paragraph was added, that's Rule 26B2, to address the explosion of electronic information and the consequent rising costs. And, and the new paragraph provided the courts with broader discretion to impose additional restrictions on the scope and extent of discovery. In 2006, that same paragraph was amended yet again to limit the discovery of ESI, electronically stored information, deemed not reasonably accessible by reason of the costs and the burdens associated with retrieving the information. And this now became part of the proportionality analysis. Um, so with all of this, the word proportionality was still rarely used, even when its principles were applied. Uh, and in many cases, the courts have simply ignored proportionality, and we've certainly seen, seen a lot of that, John. Mm -hmm. there, there are other rules which impact discoverability or, or disclosure, I guess, in, in a matter that implies that proportionality is the goal. Um, Rule 26B2CI man mandates that the courts impose limitations where the discovery sought is unreasonably cumulative or duplicative or can be obtained from some other source that is more convenient, less burdensome, or less expensive. So in other words, if the information is available from other sources, the, the court could now restrict discovery to just that one least costly source. And, and we've seen that, as, as you know, in, in some of our cases. Uh, it gets really, really expensive if you start to uh, grab information and it's and it's all duplicative. Uh, aside from generating huge volumes of the stuff, so uh, certainly it's it's a it's an area where you can save a lot of money as, as well. Also, Rule Twenty Six B Two C mandates that court limit discovery where the party seeking discovery has had ample opportunity to obtain the information by discovery in the action. Here, the court can act to deny untimely discovery requests and objections, shortening the length of the discovery and reducing costs. So in other words, we're not dragging things out. There's also the burden versus benefit rule, Rule 26B2C uh, III. This requires the court to consider whether the burden or expense of the proposed discovery outweighs its likely benefit, considering the needs of the case, the amount in controversy, the party's resources, the importance of the issues that's at stake in the action, and the importance of the discovery in resolving the issues. So they're all interesting metrics. Uh, they may apply differently in different cases. Uh, certainly the, the fact scenarios uh, of each case are different. Expensive discovery might be allowed in a case where the money value is low because of the important societal issues. That's one of those, those items that you just mentioned, Sharon. And uh, the, exp the expense to a Fortune 500 company, and we've seen this as well, is going to be viewed differently than the expense to a, a small business or a mom-and-pop hardware store. So the judges are very sympathetic about the, the amount of resources that one party may have over the other. Well, we're going to tax our listeners with, with one more rule here, but, it, but it's an important one and beloved of Judge Grimm. Uh, and so everybody always pays attention when his name comes into the conversation. Uh, and that is Rule 26G1. So while it's true that most courts which have discussed proportionality have focused on Rules 26B and C, this rule seems to be addressed infrequently and, and pretty poorly comprehended. It should carry great weight because it provides that every discovery request, response, or objection must be signed by at least one attorney of record in the attorney's own name. By signing, an attorney or party certifies that to the best of the person's knowledge, information and belief formed after a reasonable inquiry, and keep those, those words in mind because they never make it, with respect to a discovery <laughs> request, response or objection, it is neither unreasonable nor unduly burdensome or expensive considering the needs of the case, prior discovery in the case, the amount in controversy, and the importance of the issues at stake in the action. Um, 
to put it mildly, this rule is honored in the breach. They simply do not do it. Judge Grimm just pounces on attorneys who do not do it. And he loves to write about attorneys who do not do it and, and how they have failed in their obligations. The advisory committee, when it adopted the rule, said the rule provides a deterrent to both excessive discovery and evasion by imposing a certification requiring that obliges each attorney to stop and think about the legitimacy of a discovery request, a response thereto, or an objection. Well, that's that's wishful thinking, as we both know. Um, and it also noted that the premise of Rule 26G is that imposing sanctions on attorneys who fail to meet the rule standards will significantly re- reduce abuse by imposing disadvantages, therefore. And, and that's, of course, a quote. Uh, this would be great if courts consistently applied the rule, but it seems to us that the rule is largely ignored. Uh, in fact, it's even common to see these proportionality provisions used to avoid legitimate e-discovery or e-disclosure obligations. Uh, gamesmanship, unfortunately, is alive and well in litigation, uh, and many commentators, including us, continue to call for the courts to take greater control of e-discovery. Now, you're going to feel, if, if you've listened to this whole podcast, you are going to have pretty much everything there is to date about uh, proportionality, with the exception of the fact that we can't go through every single case. But John, let's start hitting the principles so that people do get a firm grasp of this. Sure. We'll start with the principle number one, which is the burdens and cost of preservation of potentially relevant information should be weighed against the potential value and uniqueness of the information when determining the appropriate scope of preservation. So the courts are often invoke their inherent authority to sanction parties for pre-litigation failure to preserve and and preservation, as as we know, that's the beginning of all this. Uh, it's, it's Monday morning quarterbacking and fraught with peril, but courts do need to make an assessment of what was done to determine the reasonableness of the preservation. We've seen this most often with respect to plaintiffs who feel aggrieved, often forget their own preservation duties. Worse, their preservation duties often begin earlier because they're planning to litigate. So in many cases, they already know long before the defendant that there's potent, potential litigation coming down the road. So their duty may actually uh, occur before the defendant's is. In each case, the court must consider what the party knew at the time and then determine whether the preservation efforts were reasonable and made in good faith. And you used those same reasonable terms earlier, Sharon. Uh, All too often, there's massive massive preservation efforts where proportionality is not discussed at all with the other side. It it seems to be kind of a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, a good countermeasure is to talk to the opposing counsel and come to an agreement on the scope of preservation. And what a novel idea, right? To that counsel cooperates and, and gets some sort of a guidance before before moving forward. And I, I know we're we're constantly ad- advising our our clients and our attorneys that we're we're second guessing here. Uh, maybe maybe a good idea just to pick the phone up and talk to the opposing party and say, uh, "Here's what we're thinking as as part of the preservation. Do you think that's going to work? Yes or no." And I, and I think so many more of the problems would go away if, if more of that happened. Uh, some of the courts have commented that a proportionality standard preservation may be rather amorphous and may not provide much comfort to a party in litigation trying to decide what to preserve. As an example, if a party is shown to have intentionally destroyed ESI, a court will likely take very little notice of proportionality. And I would uh, have the listeners uh, review Magistrate Judge Francis' decision in the Orbit One Communications versus Numrix Corp which is from the Southern District of uh, New York in October of 2010, where that, that very item is, uh, is discussed. So before we go on to the, the, the rest of the principles, uh, let's, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back in a minute to, to cover more of the Sedona principles.
Need to reach lawyers on the go? Try marketing with new media here on Legal Talk Network. We can start the conversation for you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and shoot us an email or call us at 781-551-9960. Want to stay in touch with the Legal Talk Network and get our shows automatically? RSS provides home delivery. You don't have to remember where to click. The good stuff comes right to you automatically and free. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and hit the RSS button at the top of the page. It says our podcast feeds. Now you'll be all set. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. We're discussing today from across the pond proportionality, and I am onward to principle two, which is that discovery should generally be obtained from the most convenient, least burdensome, and least expensive sources. Now, that, of course, seems like common sense, uh, and where it's applied, it does help limit cost and promote the efficiency that is found in Rule 1 of the federal rules. This rule will always vary with circumstances. If, if you're requesting email, Email, which is readily collected from custodians, you know, it's all active data, why in the heck would you go to the bother and cost of restoring backup tapes? However, on the other side, hard copy emails are not searchable, so it is very reasonable to request electronic versions of email. Uh, in many cases, the court might want a, a phased approach, and, that, and that's a term of art now, the phased approach, exploring the low-hanging fruit, also a, a term of art, uh, and then determining whether more discovery should be done. In an astonishing percentage of cases, we have seen low-hanging fruit lead to settlement as the underlying facts of the case become very clear. And our first conversation with clients is always about going after the low-hanging fruit to save money and for conclude the case much earlier uh, if you really can find the facts that are that are material to the case. So principle number three is undue burden, expense, or delay resulting from a party's action or inaction should be weighed against the party. So this means in, in most cases, the court will have imposed discovery deadlines and, and failure to meet them should have its consequences. That, that seems to be an obvious statement as well. Uh, if one party's call cause a delay, all of its lamenting to the court for further discovery or other intervention might well fall on deaf ears. Uh, the parties who seek to ratchet up expense with good cause should likewise be taken to, to the judicial woodshed. Are we going to call that another term of art, right, Sharon? Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's been used once or twice before. <laughs> uh, lawyers who did not trouble themselves to be actively engaged in the, in the meet and confer process uh, may also find unsympathetic judges. Uh, and if there's a delay in, in the preservation resulting in the destruction of ESI, it absolutely should be weighed against the parties. And, and more and more, we're, we're seeing that where the judges don't have a lot of patience if the attorneys can't agree. So primarily, they just they want these guys to cooperate and get some sort of agreement so that we can move forward with the case. Principle four, and I really like this one, extrinsic information and sampling may assist in the analysis of whether requested discovery is sufficiently important to warrant the potential burden or expense of its production. This is so true. We love sampling. It often proves that a source of ESI is either not at all useful or quite invaluable. So if the smoking gun seems likely to be in a particular location, the court is very likely to order its production, even if the cost is 
is steep and the burden high. But if nothing remotely useful turns up, the court is equally likely to refuse a request that would result in a high cost for a marginal return. Again, common sense. Uh, Kipperman v. Onyx out of Northern uh, District of Georgia in 2009 is a good illustration. Uh, In that case, the court ordered the sampling of two backup tapes, and after reviewing the tapes, additional discovery was ordered. And I love the, the judge's wry comment. He said, I don't declare these to be smoking guns, but they certainly are hot and they certainly do smell like they have been discharged lately. So I think that's, 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 a, that's a great quote. That, that and, paints that image in your head, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know exactly what the man is talking about. Um, extrinsic information may be very important in evaluating whether evidence should be produced in spite of the burden and cost. And, and so what is that? Sedona mentions that this kind of evidence might include uh, the party's opinions regarding the likely importance of the requested information, whether the requested information was created by the key players, whether discovery already produced permits an inference that the requested information is likely to be important, whether the creation of the information requested was contemporaneous with key facts in the case, and whether the information requested is unique. So principle number five is Non-monetary factors should be considered when evaluating the burdens and benefits of discovery. Uh, The substantive issues might involve philosophic, social, or institutional issues, which are important to address within the judicial system. Uh, As as you said earlier, Sharon, if the case is about mere rubles, the proportionality analysis is a lot more straightforward. It's essentially math. Uh, This is particularly true in the case of the Disability Rights Council of Greater Washington versus Washington Transit Authority, which is a case from 2007 out of the uh, District Court of D.C., in which a court denied the defendant's request to limit discovery, in part because it was an important social issue uh, under the Americans with Disability Act. So it's not always just about money. And the final principle, principle six, is that technologies to reduce cost and burden should be considered in the proportionality analysis. Uh, Now, The first words that come to my mind are, and I'm almost sorry to say them, predictive coding. And and I'm sorry to say them because, of course, there's been such a rumpus recently with with Recomine's patents and uh, uh, the sense of some in the industry that they are being strong-armed and that maybe these patents may not be as as good as they're thought to be. And I'm not going to discuss that whole mess. I have discussed it in my my blog. But I will point you, if you're interested in these predictive coding wars, uh, to a blog post by that name. Name, uh, by Chris Dale, UK-based uh, e-disclosure expert, and that's D-A-L-E, uh, and his blog is uh, the e-disclosure information project blog, and he has a very well-balanced and very lengthy blog post. Uh, there's some Hamlet in there. There's through the looking glass. Uh, there's the sinking of the Bismarck. He's a he's got all kinds of things in there that make very interesting reading, along with the facts of the case. So you might might want to take a look at that. But I will say that predictive coding and similar tools are being implemented successfully to reduce overall costs. And and while we need to make sure that technology tools that are used have been peer-reviewed and accepted, which many of them have not yet been, ultimately these tools are going to become standard in litigation. At the moment, and and, we're here sitting here in uh, June of 2011, predictive coding is really too expensive for all but the most significant cases, but the day may come when the costs come down and it becomes the standard. 
The other thing it's important to remember is that the more lawyers know about e-discovery, the more they themselves can reduce costs. And if they're smart enough to bring in experts right at the outset of a case, they're more likely to be successful in that. Where, where, what tends to happen is they waste a lot of monies, bring in the experts late. The experts have to do a lot of retraining, causing more monies to be spent. So it really is very helpful to bring them in early. Also, an audience has asked us this a lot. It's, it is never required that the best technology be used. But certainly the lawyers in the case should be conferring to find the best possible tools which do not present undue costs and make sure those are used. We don't find that happens very often, but when we really see people cooperate and set down this path together, we've seen them save a heck of a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So let's get, talk a little bit about the some of the cases. Uh, we're not going to certainly can't cover all the cases, so we're just going to pick a few. Uh, one landmark case is Mancia et al. versus Mayflower Textile Services Company, which is out of the uh, District of Maryland in uh, October of 2008. And the case considered proportionality in the context of motions to compel and motions per, for protective orders, tying together rules 26B and G. Uh, among one of the most famous quotes of uh, Judge Grimm and there are certainly, you could probably write a whole book on, on famous quotes from Judge Grimm. Uh, he said, it cannot seriously be disputed that compliance with the spirit and purposes of these discovery rules requires cooperation by counsel to identify and fulfill legitimate discovery needs, yet avoid seeking discovering the cost and burden of which is disproportionately large to what is at stake in the litigation. Counsel cannot behave responsibly during discovery unless they do both which requires cooperation rather than contrary, communication rather than confrontation. So Judge Grimm is really big on, on uh, cooperation, and we, we've discussed that before. Uh, he's been quoted time and time again with respect to proportionality, and, and, and certainly the Mancia case has, has been given uh, great deference by the other courts for its reasoning. Another case is, is Rimkus Consulting Group versus Camarada, which is out of the Southern District of Texas in uh, February of 2010, where two lawsuits were involved arising from the decision of several consulting firm employees to set up a competing firm. And this gets to a little bit of that gamesmanship you were mentioning earlier, Sharon. Uh, they sued in Louisiana to have their non-compete restrictive covenants in their employment agreements declared unlawful, and they had, they had some success in it. The Rimkus lawsuit was filed in Texas by the former employer claiming breach of the non-compete and non-solicitation covenants and the improper use of the employer's trade secrets and proprietary data in setting up the rival company. The plaintiff claimed that the defendants had intentionally destroyed ESI that would have shown violation of the covenants. In the course of her opinion granting an adverse inference instruction to the plaintiff, Judge Rosenthal emphasized proportionality and reasonableness in reviewing e-discovery conduct and indicated that most circuits require evidence of bad faith before even imposing severe sanctions. Yeah, she, in that particular case, the judge mandated that the jury determine whether the defendants had intentionally deleted ESI to prevent its use in litigation, and then to decide, in light of all the evidence, whether to infer that the lost information would be unfavorable to the defendants. Um, so she wrote, whether preservation is reasonable, and that in turn depends on what, what was done or not done was proportional to that case and consistent with clearly applicable standards. And this decision stands in stark contrast to the Pension Committee de decision 
Uh, and that, of course, was the Southern District of New York in January of 2010, where Judge Shira Shunlin uh, details sanctions that would be appropriate, even for unintentional lapses in e-discovery. And she equates all of the following with gross negligence, the failure to r- issue a written hold, the failure to identify key players, failure to ensure that the paper and ESI of key players is preserved, failure to cease the deletion of email, and failure to preserve the records of, an, of ex-employees, if un- an employer's control and failure to preserve backup tapes when they're the sole source of relevant information. There really didn't seem to be an application of proportionality there, uh, and a number of courts, as you know, have, have disagreed with the pension committee analysis. So courts are increasingly applying proportionality in cases where the responding parties demonstrate that collecting, searching, and producing requested ESI would be would be unduly burdensome. And U.S. Cent Bank uh, versus Con and Fashions, which is a uh, from the Northern District of Illinois in uh, August of 2010, the court limited the scope of discovery by five years because earlier documents would, would be expensive to retrieve and, and be of little little relevance. Uh, it, proportionality was also cited in Wilner v. Sybase Incorporated. That's from District of, in uh, Idaho of November of 2010, where the court reduced the responding party search from 30 custodians to one link most directly to the claim at issue. Uh, it was cited again in SQV Sequent Incorporated, and that's also out of the, the, well, that's out of the Southern District of Ohio in December of 2010, where the court refused to order the costly restoration of 45 backup tapes where relevant information had already been produced through live, quote, live ESI. That gets to that redundant, you know, data thing that, that I spoke of earlier and is, is information available from some of the sources. But Bearborn's assertion that the requested e-discovery was disproportionate were not allowed there. Parties had to, specifically identify why it would be unduly burdensome to comply with the discovery request and to support their claims with evidence. Generally, the, the use of experts are required to, to estimate the time and the cost. As you know, we've been involved many times in that uh, where it's, it's the battle of the experts. You're going up against somebody else and what, what is claimed to be the cost and the technologies and the time to do one thing versus the, the opinion of somebody else on the other side. And uh, and and the costs vary very widely, as as you know. We've had that uh, one one case uh, in particular that had to deal with backup tapes uh, and, and the restoration of those, where you went from tens of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars, and that was the the span of the cost. So quite a bit. Quite a bit. Yeah, our rule about that is to be skeptical. So uh, in, in an effort to achieve proportionality, a number of the courts have favored the sampling techniques. And, and as you know, we're, we applaud that, as we said earlier. Uh, a couple of cases you might want to look at. One is uh, Barrera v. Bowden. And we may be butchering the names of these cases, for which we apologize. <laughs> it's not always clear to us how they should be pronounced. Mm-hmm. The, this one was from the District Court of uh, Connecticut in 2010. In this case, the court ordered phase discovery, beginning with three of 40 requested custodians to test the cost and the yield of a larger search. Very sensible. I love it when they do this stuff. Uh, It was also favored in Tamboro v. Dworkin, um, and that was out of the Northern District of Illinois in 2010. And again, before vast amounts of e-discovery were done, the court ordered phase discovery, going after the low-hanging and least expensive fruit to determine whether uh, further more 
potentially burdensome and expensive discovery was necessary or warranted. Uh, a notable case which had proportionality at its heart was uh, John B. V. Goitz, and that's out of Tennessee, uh, the Middle District, in January of 2010. This is a really interesting case because it's what we talked about before, where proportionality may go out the window if it's not just about the dollars. Uh, the plaintiffs in this case were a group of children who brought a class action suit against the state of Tennessee, alleging deprivation of care and violation of federal law. They sought production of, of ESI that the defendants claimed, and again, that your cynicism is well justified, would, would cost $10 million to produce. Uh, the court applied the proportionality test and found that the factors favored ordering the production based on, on the following factors. Uh, the defendants here had almost all the critical documents needed by plaintiffs to prove their claims. The amount in controversy was actually unknown in, in that violations were continuing. The class cons consisted of poor children, whereas the defendants had access to federal funds in the state's AG staff. And the case presented what the court called issues of the utmost importance and noted that, quote, if a case has a potential for broad public impact, then public policy weighs heavily in favor of permitting extensive discovery, close quote. And that is actually a quote from uh, one of the Zuba Lake opinions. And finally, the ESI was needed to address the serious issues presented involving the health of needy children. Uh, at least at the end of the day, we now see, John, that the courts are talking proportionality on a regular basis, and they finally got the word right. They're actually using the right word. And, and they are also grounding it in the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, which is good. And so guiding principles like the six principles we've just discussed will continue to emerge and be refined. In the United States, we're, we're kind of late to the party here, as our colleagues across the pond would no doubt tell us very indulgently. Uh, but you know us Yanks, we're a quick study and we'll get a handle on this over the next few years. <laughs> well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And you can find more about Sensei's Computer Forensics Technology and Security Services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.